Welcome to the War on Wildlife podcast, presented by Charlie Moores and Ruth Pesey. Episode 1. The Inglorious Twelfth. Driven grouse shooting, hen harriers, wild justice, and how many pheasants did you say? Should we do this, Ruth? Let's go for it. (laughs) Okay, well, welcome to the first in a series of podcasts looking at the war on wildlife. My name is Charlie Moores. I work for Lush. I've been a bird watcher for most of my life. I co-founded the campaign group Birders Against Wildlife Crime and I am a podcaster. I'm going to be joined in this series by my co-host, my friend and colleague Ruth PC. Now I have a feeling if you're listening to this you probably know who Ruth is already but over to you Ruth. Thanks so much, Charlie. My name, as you said, is Ruth Pesey and I'm a wildlife filmmaker. I'm also a birdwatcher and have a passion for conservation, which is one of many reasons that we're great friends. Most recently, I've been using film to educate people about the problems our natural world faces and to help stop wildlife crime through my job as a filmmaker for Lush. You don't normally do podcasting, do you? I kind of talked you into this one. Twist my arm. (laughs) Well, I'm very glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. Okay, so um, this series is sort of inspired by our work at Lush and by the People's Manifesto for Wildlife, which remarkably, for those who who remembered the Walk for Wildlife in London on that wet day, is almost a year old. Um, Ruth, you were one of the uh, the people who contributed that as a, a minister. That's right, Charlie. So Chris Packham pulled together this People's Manifesto for Wildlife, like you say, just just under a year ago now. And he asked, I think there was about 20 of us to be ministers. So each take a, a responsibility for an area of of the natural world that has great concerns at the moment. Um, he created draft one um, and it was all brought together as a call for change to the way that we treat nature in the UK. Yeah. And the way that campaign was promoted was with the hashtag war on wildlife so that phrase has been around for for about a year but i think it's time someone picked it up and ran with it frankly yeah so let's go for it it's also really good timing we're recording this towards the end of july and just recently the iucn the international union for the conservation of nature brought out a report And the headline on that was, uh, it's a press release really, but it it was headlined as Report Reveals Wildlife Destruction from Treetop to Ocean. Um, The IUCN keep the red list, which looks at species and determines their status in terms of how threatened they are, whether they're close to extinction. A lot of people will be familiar with it, but the latest list shows extinction now threatens a third of all assessed species. That's a third. Shocking. So that's not even decline, that's with extinction. And that's from monkeys to rhino rays, (laughs) which I must admit I didn't know much about, but they're related to sharks. Wildlife populations have plunged by 60% since 1970, and plant extinctions are running at, to quote, a frightening rate. And I should say on, on a partisan note, We're not immune here in the UK because the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world uh, in 189th place out of 218 countries. More than one in seven of our native species face extinction and more than half, 56 percent, are in decline. 
Uh, this includes species that were common when, when I was growing up, uh, possibly when you were growing up too, Ruth, like the hedgehog, whose numbers have fallen by half in the UK since 2000. The barn owl. Barn owls have suffered a 75% drop in population since the 1930s, and that's because of changes in land use, um, which have wiped out hunting grounds and huge numbers of their prey. And other farmland birds have declined by 56% between 1970 and 2015. And that's according to the uh, British Trust for Ornithology, the BTO. And that sort of puts into context these podcasts and what we're trying to do with them. Exactly. And over the next year, we'll be using these monthly podcasts to explore topics and issues affecting our wildlife and discussing this idea that you've mentioned there, that there is a war against our natural world. Yeah, we're going to be looking at things like... Um, introduced species, wildlife trade, poaching, a whole, a whole load of stuff that you and I have sat down and sweated through and come up with these, these topics to cover the whole year. Exactly. And um, of course, not everyone agrees that there is a war on wildlife, though. And many people, in fact, might prefer to use a different term. Yeah, we've found that out because um, we've been asking researchers, campaigners, um, scientists, activists to answer a short question for a what we're terming a mini interview which we're going to edit into these aren't we and uh, we asked them assuming you think there is a war on wildlife what would be your one piece of advice to help tackle it and i'd say of the number we've already asked about half are going actually i'm not sure i'm happy with that phrase uh, which i think is really interesting we're just going to play one in a in a minute or two from chris packham himself to start this off he opens by saying, yes, I think there is. But we've also got um, another one that we're going to play later on in the episode from Bruce Parry, the author and explorer, where he says that it's too strong a term, but that we're anaesthetized to the reality of what's going on. And opening ourselves up to accept what's happening will be difficult. And the more I've thought about that, like we've discussed this, I like the fact that it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me think about it. It makes me think, do I agree whether there is or there isn't or what it actually means? I think that's, I think that's the point because we've reached, we have reached a stage now where there's no disputing the fact, as you've said, the IUCN red list is showing that there's a definite decline on our wildlife. And I think that we have to treat it as a war now. That's my opinion anyway. Yeah. And um, Something is definitely happening. Exactly. And we've got to come up with a strategy to tackle it and prevent any more loss of natural life before it's too late. And I think by asking these questions to people, we can explore that term a bit more and find out more about what, what can be done. And of course, we're not just asking our friends, colleagues and other people who are already perhaps in the industry. We're opening this up to you guys as well. So please do. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be giving a link to the, to the website, which <laughs> at the moment is still being built. But hopefully by the time we've edited this and get it out, we will have an address, which I will add on at the end. Um, just a, a, another one, which we will play on a different episode, but it was um, from the author Julian Hoffman. And he didn't like the term because he felt it separated us into groups from the start. So almost an us and them. And one of his concerns was that it would alienate farmers. Well, as you know, I feel really strongly about this. Yeah. I've got a great fondness for many farmers, I think, um, a great deal of respect, certainly. Um, they work more closely with wildlife and animals and have a greater compassion for them than many people certainly would 
even be able to comprehend. Their livelihoods literally depend upon it. And I think in some cases, in fact, probably in many cases, they've been forced to make difficult decisions that are having a negative impact on our wildlife as a result of the way the government or other policies and the way in which we consume produce. And I think that farmers themselves aren't the enemy. It's the system. Yeah, that's a conclusion I've come to as well, actually. And I, I really liked what Julian Hoffman said. It, that made me reconsider things. I think there is a system. There is very definitely some aspects of life that we're going to be talking about over the next 12 months, which is definitely you are making a conscious choice. This one is going out on August the 12th, this particular episode, and a lot of people will go, I know why they're doing it for August the 12th. It's the start of the driven grouse shooting season. Yes. We'll come back to that in a minute, though. We've got to hear what Chris has got to say. You're absolutely right. I was getting well ahead of myself. So let's have a listen to what Chris says. I think there's absolutely no ambiguity at all that we are waging a war on wildlife. And we do that indirectly and directly. So indirectly, we think nothing of tearing down habitats, progressing with developments which are not best suited to consider the environment, so on and so forth. And then slightly more directly, we dump tons of toxic chemicals as pesticides into the environment every year, which is having a profound effect on on that wildlife. We deforest areas without thinking too much about that. And then there's the direct assault on on, on wildlife, whereby we demonise species as pests and persecute them. And that's everything from wasp to birds of prey and and, and now a call to cull gulls um, because they're allegedly making a, a nuisance of themselves. The solution, from my perspective, is simple. Education and tolerance. If more people understood the damage that was being done to our environment and the wildlife that lives there and the degree to which we are dependent upon its health and sustainability for our own health and sustainability, then I think that they would be more concerned and more likely to, to look after it. And the tolerance needs to come in because, you know, I don't use the P word. The pest word is not part of my vocabulary. I see animals which have adapted to live with us, live alongside us, and and therefore we should enjoy their presence. Everything from the gulls and, and the foxes in our cities. And I'm currently recording this standing outside my barn where I've got two wasps' nests. I have no intention of removing them whatsoever. I've got four here in, in, in the yard. And I've just put up some notices saying, by the way, there's a wasp nest in here. Be careful. Don't stand in the door during daylight. Otherwise, you might upset them. So by understanding a little bit about the behavior of these animals and what they require, it's very easy for me to live alongside them. So the wasps, the hornets, the foxes, the rats, all of these animals which inhabit my space, I'm happy to share my space with because I can manage them passively so that they don't sting me, get into my kitchen and eat my sandwiches or or do any harm to my interest whatsoever. So education and tolerance, if we could only motivate and manifest those things, we could have a peace treaty uh, rather than this war on wildlife. So I, I really like the way that Chris started that because his first lines almost were, there is no ambiguity. We are waging a war on wildlife. And I think one of the points he brought up there, the P word, pest. One of the issues we are going to be exploring is the way that language is used to put a value on wildlife. 
Yes, and I know it's going to come up later, (laughs) but it is a topical issue because, as Chris mentioned, at least a couple of tabloid newspapers declared war on psycho seagulls this week, which has picked up even on Radio 5 Live with listeners' comments, including things like seagulls are flying rats. This is simply not the case. And I'm sorry, I know we're going to pick this up in more detail later, but I'm just going to get this off my chest now. They are most- You go for it, Ruth. They are just opportunists who will take advantage of smaller items of food. In this case, it would seem that someone has a very small dog and they've let them run loose in the garden in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have for a similar small pet that wasn't a dog. It's worth noting as well that we don't know which species of gull it was, but it was most likely to be a herring gull, which is on the red list. So in Britain... Herring gulls have declined massively and are they certainly have. much rarer than people think. They certainly have. and But as you say, Charlie, we're going to cover this topic further when we discuss the language that's used when referring to our wildlife. But I will say one thing, that despite my recent Twitter rant, I don't actually have a problem with the term seagull itself. Just psychopath. How can you call an animal a psychopath? They don't have those characteristics. And I should point out, you are a dog lover. You have immense sympathy for anyone who loses an animal in in that sort of circumstance. I do, absolutely. But it's the term psycho seagull. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. It's the fact that we're referring to to a bird here as a psychopath when clearly it's just an opportunist. Yeah, yeah. We really do not allow wildlife into what we consider our space. And our space is now virtually the entire planet. But we will move on. So, we're going to talk about shooting. We are going to talk about shooting. That is our first full episode. That's that's a very long introduction. August the 12th. Ah, the glorious 12th. Yes, the day war is declared on one of my favourite British birds, the beautiful red grouse. Part of any war is propaganda and the way that language is used. And Mark Avery, sure everyone knows him, but he's a writer, blogger, conservationist, etc. Wrote a book about the driven grouse shooting industry and he titled that Inglorious Twelfth Conflict in the Uplands. Um, and if you read that or understand the arguments about that conflict, about driven grouse shooting, it is inglorious. So it's the inglorious twelfth for me. This is um, a sport or a so-called sport that involves driven grouse shooting, where enormous numbers of birds are driven towards a line of men with men and women with guns who have paid hundreds if not thousands of pounds and uh, they are there simply to kill as many birds as possible and they picked on grouse originally because it's an incredibly fast flying bird yeah they are they're fantastic flyers i can imagine if you were walking up to them and you didn't know which way it was going to fly or whatever i could see that perhaps there was a challenge here but in this situation you've literally got a line which is impenetrable so you're literally holding up your gun and shooting something flying over your head Yeah, it's target practice, using live animals as the targets. And the problem is, it's the highest number of birds that are killed is the highest amount of money that's brought in. So, of course, estates will do everything they can to increase the numbers to artificially high levels and protect them from everything, predators and anything else. And that's just so that these birds can be killed, remember. And we're talking huge numbers of grouse here. We're talking about uplands that have maybe 10 times as many red grouse as would normally be found within that area. So as you say, predators, and that can range from everything from stoats and weasels to foxes to golden eagles and hen harrows, which we will talk about in just a second. Anything at all that is conceived as a threat 
to the enormous numbers of red grouse are taken out of these moors. So the war on wildlife aspect of this, it's not only the war on red grouse, it's the war on everything else around it. Exactly. And I mean, it's not just even predators themselves. If you look at some of the moors up in Scotland, you've got huge areas that are just being cleared every winter time of mountain hares. So I was up there 18 months ago and saw for myself literally a whole mountainside completely eradicated of mountain hares. And these are beautiful animals that people will pay to go up and watch and take photos of and are even an icon of our British natural history. Now, I have to admit I'm not a trained ecologist, but I am fairly certain mountain hares do not prey on grouse chicks. People will be asking, why on earth are they waging a war on mountain hares? So the main argument for this is that mountain hares carry ticks and that those ticks may be able to spread looping ill to the red grouse and therefore affect their numbers, affect their health. I don't think it also helps that mountain hares are one of the principal preys of the golden eagle. And the last thing a gamekeeper wants on his estate or her estate are golden eagles. Well, of course. Remove I mean, the prey, remove the eagles. Or well, you could look at it the other way and you could say that maybe if there were still golden eagles there, that the populations would be kept naturally in check. And the fact is that there are snares and there are illegal traps as well as illegal traps placed all around moorland in order to capture predators such as golden eagles. Now, it's completely illegal to target a golden eagle or a hen harrier, and again, we'll be talking about that a bit later. But something that we were discussing just earlier is snares are actually legal here in the UK, but not everywhere. No, uh, uh, snares are banned throughout most of Europe, and snare is a horrible thing. It's, it's basically a noose of wire that's hidden in the vegetation. And by law, they're required to stop. That um, they have, a, they have a kind of like a, um, a locking mechanism, so they're not actually meant to strangle the animal. It's meant to uh, when the, when the animal stops moving and backs off, the noose backs off. I've seen animals almost cut in half by snares. I've seen horrific evidence of animals that have been caught in these snares and they've been so traumatised by the experience and they've not been checked on enough that they've actually gnawed off their own limbs in order to try and get away, which is just, that's cruelty. That's just plain cruelty. And we're not talking about one or two snares. These these are everywhere in Moorland. And they also use little spring traps that are unbelievably, they are legal as well. They have to be covered. So you, uh, what you'll find is these traps are set on a branch, particularly across um, a small stream or a burn. Gamekeepers know that these animals, when they try and cross these burns, they are, they're looking for these natural bridges formed by sticks, some formed by branch. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these traps placed all around Moorland. And this is all year round. And we don't know how many animals are being killed in these snares and these traps because there is no requirement for anyone to keep a list. No, and of course that makes it really hard for scientists to assess the populations and assess the effect that these are having on them. But what we do know is it is an unnaturally large cull against our predators and that can't be good for anything. No, it can't. It can't no. Estate owners always like to talk about um, management and keeping a balance, but there is no balance when you remove predators. They're a natural part of an ecosystem, a natural part of a functioning ecosystem anyway. Exactly, and I think if there are predators in place, then you're keeping prey levels at natural densities. 
So we're talking already about at least half a million red grouse shot or injured and then finished off by dogs. We're talking about unknown numbers of predators like stoats and weasels and foxes. And we're also talking about hen harriers, which we mentioned earlier. You want to give a quick description of a hen harrier for anyone who doesn't know what a hen harrier is? Hen harriers are these beautiful birds. They're a real treat for bird watchers and anybody who happens to be lucky enough to see one. They've got a wingspan of probably maybe just over two foot and the males are this ghostly whitey grey colour and they do this thing called quartering which is where they glide over the ground so over moorland and in the winter lower farmland areas and they're looking for prey so small rodents and I should say small birds as well. Yeah they, they eat skylarks and meadow pipits and they take a lot. They do take grouse chicks which is indisputable. They do, and unfortunately that's why estate owners don't like them. But as a birdwatcher, I'm going to argue the case here for the hen harrow because they really are absolutely spectacular birds. They're known as the ghosts of the moor, and that's because of this ghostly grey colour the males have, and they just swoop silently over, and it's just breathtaking to watch they are, them. They are stunning birds, and it's rare to see them, and that wasn't always the case. I, I, we are going back a fair bit in, in, in history, but they were once quite a widespread bird. The name hen harrier comes from when they actually used to ch- chase farmyard chickens. They were down in the lowlands. You now almost entirely have to go in summer anyway to the breeding grounds. They're confined to these high moorland areas where they are relentlessly persecuted. Yeah, and that's really not an exaggeration to say. I mean, the most recent UK hen harrier population survey revealed that there was a decline of 13% between 2010 and 2016. That's just in six years. Six years. And that's to an estimated 545 pairs. Just not money, given this was a bird that could be seen taking chickens. (laughs) And of those pairs, 460 are in Scotland. And a large number of those are on offshore islands, like the, the bigger offshore islands, like Skye and Mull and places like that. And right. they're on the Isle of Man. Where there's no driven grass shooting. Where there's no driven grass shooting. There's some staggering figures about satellite-tagged hen harriers. Before we give the figures, uh, you've been involved in satellite tagging when you've been there as a, as a filmmaker, haven't you? Can you briefly explain what a satellite tag is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you say, I've um, been fortunate enough to be able to film the tagging of birds on a number of occasions, and not just birds, but other animals, of course, as well. So satellite tags are these um, lightweight, very small kind of almost chips that are used. They're attached to the outside of the bird's feathers. They have no negative impact on the bird's behaviour or on its ability to perform normal, regular Hen harrier stuff. Hen harrier stuff, <laughs> exactly. They have absolutely no negative impact whatsoever, but they're there for scientists to be able to gather data. You can gather data as to, in terms of where they are. So they emit a signal, and depending on the satellite tag and the setup, depends how regularly that signal is emitted. Scientists are able to build a picture of where that bird or animal has travelled that's wearing that tag, and that enables scientists and all of us to get a better picture of how birds are using habitats, how populations are intermingling with each other and where overlaps different species occur as well. So it's a great source of data gathering. Yeah. And that's that's where satellite tagging began. It was to collect information. It wasn't intended to prove or disprove anything else. It was 
just to find out where these things were going. And we should say that that's still entirely what they're there for. I mean, we are using these satellite tags entirely for that reason. It just so happens that unfortunately researchers are noticing that many of their tags are disappearing. And you can tell us a bit more about that, Charlie. Yeah. I've got these figures from a blog that I think everybody should be reading. That's Rat Persecution UK. And they blogged on the 19th of March this year that 72% of the Natural England satellite tag tenera, so that's a project run by Natural England, who's the, the wildlife agency for England, 72% are presumed to have been illegally killed versus 9% of natural deaths. 72% illegally killed versus 9%. 72% is actually the minimum value. It may be as high as 82% versus 9.8% when you include the remaining birds that are still alive or unaccounted for. Hen harrows are highly likely to be killed on grouse moors and are more likely to be killed inside protected areas such as national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty with large areas of grass moors than any other type of land use, especially those protected areas in North Yorkshire, Bowland, which is in Lancashire, and the Peak District. That's that's an incredible thing. And once again, that has been discovered through just trying to trace where these birds are going. We know where they're going. We know where they don't leave. It is absolutely horrific. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I was unfortunate enough, or fortunate enough, depending on which way you look at it, to have been involved in some, again, some filming of a hen harrier case. And this was a very, very, very tragic case. This was up in Scotland. It was a male hen harrier. So one of these absolutely beautiful birds that I was just talking about just a moment ago, it had been caught in a trap, a spring trap. That which is had, illegal. Which is illegal. This spring trap had been placed right next to the hen harrier's nest. There is no ambiguity about what species these people were targeting when they put that trap there. It was definitely aimed at hen harrier and it caught the male. The male was trapped by his leg. His leg was severely broken and damaged. He was taken while he was still alive to the vet. Um, Despite a great deal of work and a great deal of effort, unfortunately, he had to be euthanized because his injuries proved to be too severe eventually and um and that was just such a tragic end and such an unnecessary death as well those traps like your traps like that should never ever ever be in use and they certainly shouldn't be in use right next to a nest no they were they were banned in in the very early part of the of um the 1900s um you can still actually buy them then they're sold secondhand in 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 markets as to put on walls you know to as a display piece but it's totally illegal to use them and where was this particular well this was on a grouse mall on a grouse mall on a grouse mall in scotland um there's a lot of chatter on um social media the vast majority of us were totally outraged there were some claims that how come you managed to film it shouldn't the police have been notified just to clear that up So the police were definitely notified in the first instance. We filmed and we gathered footage that was taken by the researchers and the vet actually recorded some of that footage for us in the lead up to it. We were told about what had happened after it happened. We used that footage and pieced together the story by using footage intercut 
um, subsequently. So absolutely, the police were involved. Of course, nobody's been prosecuted as of yet. And that is just the case with so many of these situations, unfortunately. The people who were committing these crimes are just not being caught and not being prosecuted for it. Let's have a quick discussion on that, because that's one of the things that some proponents of grouse shooting always say, well, where are your convictions? This isn't happening if there were, there'd be loaded convictions. How on earth are you supposed to convict an individual of placing a spring trap by a nest when it's done on a private estate, miles from anywhere, presumably at night, there are no cameras, there are no witnesses, no one within the community is ever going to come forward and say, oh, I know who did it, it was him who lives in that cottage down there. There is no wonder there are no convictions. No, exactly. I mean, these areas are absolutely vast. And I should say that they're completely open access. And so anyone could be walking there. However, they're so big and the areas where these traps are placed are very, very remote. A hen harrier is usually going to choose to nest in a way away from a footpath or a regularly used area. Of course, therefore, the places where these traps are going to be placed is going to be next to the nest, not next to a footpath. We should say that's open access in Scotland because the law is different in Scotland. You've got the Crow Act there that allows people to go land, but it isn't the same on some of the private estates in England. Access is more difficult. No, exactly. And you should always check with your local estates and local areas before you go out into the countryside. So just to repeat that, because we, you know, people listening to us might think, well, you've just cherry picked one example. Just to repeat that, 72% of the natural England satellite tagged hen harriers are presumed to have been illegally killed. That's because the sat tags suddenly went off. These things are incredibly reliable. They simply do not switch off. And even when they begin to fail, because I've spoken to a lot of people, same as you've spoken to a lot of people about this, they start to show that in the signals that they're sending out, don't they? Exactly. There's a very, there's a very big difference between a satellite tag that naturally starts to fail, which is rare, um, or a satellite tag that simply stops working soon after it is last recorded at ground level in a vehicle turning circle. Yeah, which is the case of... um... Of a golden eagle golden this year. Recently. I interviewed Ian Thompson, head of investigations, RSPB Scotland, and he came out with this wonderful line that satellite tags are 25 times more likely to fail in Scotland than anywhere else in the world. These, these birds are being shot. These birds are being killed. There is not a 25 times higher failure rate just because it's Scotland. It's the same tags, same conditions, same everything, just in Scotland. Yeah, I don't think you can blame it on the midges, that's for certain. I don't think you possibly can. Um, There is a whole list of hen harrows that have been killed over the last few years. It is really sad. A number of them have been also satellite tagged via the RSPB's Life Plus project, which was an EU-funded project. So this isn't just us saying it. Um, And uh, an ecologist, Dr. Hugh Webster, came out with this fantastic phrase a while ago, which referenced that information about where hen harrows were being killed, saying that they can hide the bodies, they can hide the tags, but they can't hide the pattern. Exactly. So true. So true. Such wise words. Um, And just before we move on, um, grouse moor lobbyists like to tell everyone how much they contribute to the economy. But the truth is that English and Scottish moors together contribute 0.005% to Britain's GDP. Astonishingly, they create just 
0.08% of its jobs. The RSPB's tiny but popular reserves, um, I didn't write that, but that is true, they are tiny but popular, brought the same income to the UK economy in 2009 as all grouse moors combined. And of course, when we're talking about shooting, we're not just talking about driven grouse shooting. No. Um, September the 1st sees the start of the partridge shooting season. I hate that word, season. And October the 1st, the start of pheasant shooting season. And everything we've said in terms of predator control for grouse is exactly the same for pheasants. It certainly is. I mean, we're looking at, well, the shooting industry itself says that there's about 50 million partridges and pheasants that are released every year to be shot. Yeah, these birds are imported. Um, most of the, certainly the partridge breeding centres are, I think, Portugal and France. A lot of the pheasants are coming over from France. They're being imported as young chicks, stuck on a ferry, put in these breeding cages, grown, released and shot. Exactly. And Mark Avery, again, our lovely colleague and friend, um, released an article in British Birds earlier this year in which he said that if you add up the weight of all the pheasants in winter, the total is higher than the weight or biomass of all the other birds out in the British countryside in total. That's a staggering fact, isn't it? Add up the weight of all the other birds in the countryside, all of them, and in total, they would weigh less than the weight of pheasants that are released. It's just shocking. And many of these don't even make it to be killed by guns. Many are killed on the roads. Yeah, it's the bird most likely to, to be involved in a car collision. I can believe that. I can believe oh, yeah, that. Yeah, I shouldn't say unbelievably. Yeah, the, the number you see dead on the side of the road. Exactly. And I'm sure they probably cause car accidents as well as people swerve to try and avoid them. So it's not just the impact on the bird itself, but also... Mm the subsequent accidents as well. And um, many are killed or scavenged by things like buzzards and stuff. Yeah, and that's one of the really important points about this, isn't it? Is that particularly in relation with pheasants, there is huge fox control because the gamekeepers are saying there are too many foxes. We need to control them to protect our pheasants. And yet they are the very people that are releasing literally millions and millions of birds into the countryside right in front of the foxes <laughs> to a fox a pheasant is simply a meal on legs beyond that they they pheasants and red-legged partridges themselves are omnivorous predators and they eat a wide range of plants invertebrates reptiles and even small birds and mammals if you um scroll through youtube or video platforms there are pictures on there of pheasants eating quite rare reptiles like slow worms and they're thought to even maybe contribute towards the decline in adders as well. And we've got to remember, all these are being released simply so people can use them for target practice. The argument always goes, no, 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 we, we shoot them for the pot. And yet bags and bags of dead pheasants are found or hidden in pits. And this is something we haven't discussed, um, stink pits, which um, you've filmed. I've done a podcast about them as well which is again that's for my mind part of the war on wildlife they're a disgusting thing oh it's one of the most shocking experiences ever to be honest to come across a stink pit i mean these are areas of countryside in which animals are hung up either from trees from branches they're dumped into an area and the idea is to create this really large stench which will encourage predators in and then all around the edge of these stink pits, there are traps or snares, as we've discussed. 
which then capture the predators coming in. Once they're dead, they hang them up to create more of this terrible stench, hence the stink pit name. It's it's absolutely ruthless. Stink pit is the wrong word, isn't it? It's almost it's an arena. Exactly. It's not it's not a dugout or generally speaking, it's not a dugout pit that's been piled high with animals, although you could perhaps see that in some cases. This is an area depending on where it is, it varies in size, but it's an area in which there's a group of trees or just ground where animals are just strung up around and literally whichever way you look, you can just see dead animals hung up. Now, for people who care about wildlife, I I know estate owners, gamekeepers, they always say they love animals. They always say that. I can't imagine doing, I can't not imagine doing the things that they're doing. These stink pits are disgusting. On the same, on the same trip where I went to see a stink pit was um, a crow cage trap, which is basically, um, it's kind of like um, a wire cage, almost sometimes the size of a small garden shed with a funnel. And they put a corpse of a, a bird in there usually, or they put in what called calling birds. So other birds to attract. So they might put some crows in there, then they make a ruckus, they'll attract other crows. They're attracted in by the food that's put in there. Um, and once they go into the funnel, they can't come out again. And there's numerous videos online where a masked unknown figure has gone into these cage traps with a stick and beaten these birds to death. And these are really intelligent birds. And let's remember that they're here, they're scavenging these animals, which are being released. In fact, I think Mark was saying that the numbers that of pheasants and red-legged partridges that have been bred for shooting and released into the countryside have increased roughly tenfold in the last decade. Yeah, this this is this is an industry. It's industrial. So, Out of interest, there's a, there's a stat. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say a stat on partridge shooting. Um, and it was reported on one of the government websites. That on the 7th of May this year, Kerry McCarthy MP, one of the few vegan MPs, wonderful, asked the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, Michael Gove, I think whether he still is by the end of today, because we're recording this on the same day that the Conservative Party are um, announcing their new leader. Uh, but how many partridge eggs for hatching and live birds were imported into England from within the EU? I didn't know this about partridges. I was focused mainly on pheasants. Over 2 million partridges and over 25 million pheasants. And these are the government's own figures. It's just shocking, it's isn't astonishing. it? And there's a campaign actually from Wild Justice, which is... Um, yeah, let's talk about Wild Justice. See, so Wild Justice is a campaign group that's been set up by Ruth Tingay, one of the authors of the Raptic Persecution blog, Mark Avery, who we've already spoken about, and also Chris Packham. And they've set up an organisation to fight injustices in wildlife and raise money to fight them in the courts. They're looking at the law, aren't they, and saying, particularly to um, Natural England or to the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, you are not interpreting the law in the correct way or you're not carrying out the law in the correct way. Um, They had a good go at what's called a general licence, which is another aspect of perhaps the war on wildlife. The general licence is almost a virtual licence. There's no paper. You don't have to apply for it. It's almost a given. And there are a list of bird species on the general license, which you are allowed to kill virtually all year round, providing certain conditions are being met. The shooting organisations went ballistic, saying we are no longer allowed to carry out 
control. We're not, we're not allowed to do this. We're not allowed to do that. This is all wild justice's fault. And all wild justice had done was to point out that the law was being broken by the terms of the general licenses. They were not being fulfilled properly. As they said, why are birds like jays on the general license? You could kill jays practically without any comeback, which is a crazy situation. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. That's absolutely for certain. Um, in their latest Yeah, which they launched last week. They've started by asking DEFRA to study the impact of releasing all of these birds, say the pheasants and partridges that we've been talking about, into the countryside and assess what that impact really is. They've uh, written to the Secretary of State to say that this assessment must be made on this activity. Otherwise, they could be in breach of the Habitats Directive. Essentially, you cannot release non-native species into the wild. The pheasant doesn't occur here naturally. It does reach into Eastern Europe just, but it's it's mainly sort of Asia and China. That's that's where the pheasant comes from. We're so used to seeing pheasants. Like they're, they're everywhere. They're on cards, they're on signs, they're in shops. And everyone knows what a pheasant is. But it's, it isn't a British bird. I know, it's ironic, isn't it, that this completely um, foreign introduced species has become almost a symbol of the traditional British countryside. Yeah, yeah. And we do actually get partridges in this country, but they're not the red-legged partridge that naturally occur here. They're grey partridges and they're very different. Yeah, the old-fashioned name of the grey partridge was the English partridge and the red-legged partridge was the French partridge. If you were to suggest, oh, I'd like to release 50 million just name any other bird or any other animal from any other part of the world into the British countryside, there'd be absolute outrage. You, you couldn't do it. And rightly so. You should not be able to do this. Exactly. Not even 50 million. I think if I suggested I wanted to release 50, there would be yeah. an outcry. And yet because of this industry that's in place, they're yeah. being they're being allowed to, to get away with it. And we don't know what the exact impact of that is. But what we can see and what we can say for certain is that there is an impact happening on our natural world. We just don't know to what extent that that is. We can see change occurring and it's likely linked to the increase in the release of these species. If you contrast that with the hoops that people are going through to reintroduce native animals like the beaver or the white-tailed eagle, they can be tangled up for years in, in paperwork. But the shooting people want to release 50 million pheasants, partridges and pheasants, to have a nice day out blasting birds out of the sky. Well, no problem there. So good on um, Wild Justice. I totally support them in doing this. Whether you think there is a war on wildlife or not, it is absolutely clear. Shooting industry is a war on wildlife, not just the birds that are being shot, but as we've said, all the, all the peripheral wildlife is taken out at the same time. Certainly in my eyes, it's the intensification of that shooting industry that has created a, a war a war on wildlife from that angle, definitely. Um, we've mentioned several other times that we have these other recordings. Let's hear from Bruce Parry, uh, author and explorer. He, he's done some remarkable films and he's perhaps best known for spending time out in rainforests where he, he really immerses himself into tribal cultures and has been a fantastic spokesman for um, indigenous people around the world. So we asked him about this and uh, this was his response. So do I believe there's a war on wildlife? Well, war's a strong word. I mean, I definitely think that our farming practices can be very focused just on the things that are being farmed and not in biodiversity and therefore lots of stuff is culled accordingly and and so there's a bit of a war there 
for things that aren't necessarily um, but seen as pests or vermin. That definitely seems to be a war. The rest of us, um, we're incidentally causing a lot of harm. It might not be uh, aware or overt, but it's definitely the way we're living is causing, let's say, you know, this like sixth mass distinction and huge biodiversity loss. So there seems to be some sort of like terrible extermination happening. I don't know that it's necessarily something that, that we would do if we realized. So it doesn't feel like a war in, in a conscious way, but it definitely feels like that the effects are, are warlike. So what would we do to combat it if, if there is this war going on? Well, becoming aware of it is the first step. And then just becoming more, more conscious of, of it and therefore reevaluating our behavior would, would help. I think that Clearly, this separation and seeing ourselves as separate from nature is a massive problem, and it's been around for a long time. And it's probably born out of since the earliest days of agriculture, 10,000 years ago, where we started manipulating and domesticating and seeing ourselves as the lords and masters. I've had the great privilege of living with people who understand implicitly that that's madness, because the well-being of the natural world is directly related to the well-being of ourselves. But we've somehow lost that it was easier i guess for the hunter gatherers because they could see instantly that their actions on nature had an equal and opposite reaction on themselves but we've sort of with our technology and our and our great prowess have have managed to sort of export all of the detritus and the problems over the hill and so we can carry on living in our seemingly beautiful lives while we're causing craters and slag piles and poisons elsewhere but of course there's so many of us now that those those uh, all those problems are coming home to roost and we're slowly beginning to wake up to the fact that we are we are in one living ecosystem one bubble one you know spaceship earth and that all of these problems are indeed going to cause us all problems in the long run climate change being an obvious example but we're on such a fast conveyor belt, like a train steaming towards cataclysm, that we're, we're waking up to it at a very difficult time because we're all very comfortable on this nice little train. And, um, and so getting off it feels very, very hard indeed. But getting off it's what's needed. So what do we do? Well, we first have to wake up and accept the reality. We have to then also be motivated to change because if we don't, it's, it's, not, going to be, it's not going to be good. And we have to feel more deeply. I think that's the other thing. It's, it's all very well intellectualizing this, but until we actually feel in, in ourselves um, this connection, the connection to nature, the empathy for nature, the, the, the realization that our actions uh, in the world are also actions on ourselves, if we don't feel it, then we're much less motivated to change. We've actually got to feel it. But the difficulty with feeling it is that we have to open ourselves to feelings. And in many ways, we're kind of relatively, I believe, living in a, in a sort of anesthetized state where we have um, dulled our senses for a number of reasons. Firstly, really waking up to the feeling of what our actions are doing in the world is very painful. But secondly, we're all carrying so much trauma. I think just being in, in, in many of the civilized societies of today, we're carrying a lot of pain deep down inside. And mm -hmm. to open ourselves up to feeling means opening ourselves up to all of our own inner troubles. And that's clearly very hard. Mm -hmm. So I also think on top of that, you've, you, you're talking a lot here, but you did ask me a complex question. 
believing that going on the journey of looking at ourselves, doing our healing and, and, and feeling more deeply is a good journey to go on, is, is essential too. We have to believe that learning to feel more deeply, learning to go on the inner journey, learning to heal and undo all of our stuff so that we can reconnect with the feelings that we need so much, we need to believe that that's something worth doing. It's easier to just be in denial. It's easier to be nihilistic or, or fatalistic and go, well, there's nothing I can do. But if we can truly believe that going on the healing journey is a good thing to do and it will bring positive results in the long run, even if it's difficult in the short run, if we can believe that that's worth doing, um, then there's a chance that we might actually do it. Uh, but at the moment, there's a, the, the, there's a competition of beliefs, a competition of, of narratives, and a competition of all sorts out there that are, that are persuading us and telling us not to bother. That is dangerous because we have to. We have to learn how to feel. So there you have it. In not very much of a nutshell, what we need to do is we need to learn how to feel. We need to learn how to reconnect. And we need to get off the train and shift our lives in the knowledge that we will all be better in the long run. And then we have a chance. Bruce Parry, uh, recorded by our colleague Elise McKenna at the Seed Festival just a couple of weeks ago. He was talking there about trauma. And I, I've, I've interviewed Bruce before and I, I know he means trauma in a more general sense, that our lifestyle is causing us traumas. But it's a point that I think is worth picking up at, in the context of these podcasts, because these are really difficult subjects for you and I to talk about. They make us angry. Yeah, they certainly do. I mean, we're both very passionate people, especially when it comes to these subjects. And I think these are things that we feel very close to and and rightfully so. For me, I've spent my whole life being outdoors as much as possible, looking for wildlife, wanting to immerse myself in it to the greatest degree. So to watch it disappearing around me and not just disappearing, but having knowing that other people are causing that decline in that wildlife makes me feel of course it makes me feel very angry it makes me feel very sad it makes me feel very 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 sad that future generations won't be able to immerse themselves in the way that I did and it makes me think that perhaps I'm not immersing myself as much as perhaps my grandparents did mm. and like I said right at the intro I've been a bird watcher since the year dot I grew up being a bird watcher I've been a bird watcher for more years than I care to think about and when I see a bird being blasted out of the sky purely for fun, I can't help but see that as as a war on on, on wildlife. So whether people are going to be listening to this and thinking, you're overreacting or you're taking this too seriously, you and I aren't taking this too seriously. We are taking it seriously. We have to. The time has come. You know, what was it we were saying earlier? It's a 60% decline in our wildlife. If that's not serious then tell me what it is. If we don't do something now, we absolutely are screwed. You know, we are going to lose all of our wildlife. And I think, you know, what Bruce was saying there is, okay, maybe for him, the term war on wildlife isn't right. And that's something that we'll be continuing to pick up throughout the series. But there's no doubt there whatsoever that there's this decline in wildlife. And for me, and probably for you as well, that is a war. That's a war on wildlife. Yeah. As I said, the more I think about this, the more I see it mm -hmm. as a war. And I see that term as being very uncomfortable. And I think that is a good thing. 
as Bruce said there, we've all got very comfortable. We're on a train that is gathering pace, but we're comfortable on that train. I got this image of like, you know, we were like first class passengers sitting back in our seats, admiring the view as the train hurtles towards the edge. And we need to be shocked out of that comfort zone. I absolutely 100% believe that. No matter how you phrase it, we need to be shaken out of our comfort zone. And we would absolutely welcome your thoughts on this as yeah, well. Completely. Yeah, we'd love to know if you think the war on wildlife is a term that we should be using. And if so, what are the things that you are doing or what do you recommend other people to do to try and stop this decline in our wildlife? And reading how it makes you feel. I know feeling has kind of gone out of fashion, hasn't it? It's certainly in scientific circles. But I don't think you do something unless you feel something about what it is you're going to do. Absolutely. And I think exactly what Bruce said just there, I think we should all be opening ourselves to feelings. Yeah. Okay, um, our next episode, we're going to be looking at uh, another aspect of uh, what we're terming this war on wildlife, and that's fox hunting illegally, but it still goes on. We're also going to be picking up on that old language. The language. Yes, yes indeed. And looking at words such as control, manage, cull, vermin, and the P word, pest itself. Yeah, and how conservation has been hijacked. And one of my absolute bugbears that is used far too much now everyone who disagrees with you whatever position you hold is called an extremist so we're going to be looking at all of that in the meantime let's give some links to the people we've been mentioning we should really start with the raptor persecution uk website and that can be found at raptor persecution scotland.wordpress.com uh, Mark Avery's blog is at markavery.info slash blog. And if you want to find out what, what, how Wild Justice are getting on with their latest campaign and what they're up to next, then do check out wildjustice.org.uk. And our website, which uh, we've said is in production at the moment, but will be ready, I'm assured, is at waronwildlife.co.uk. And you can find all sorts of information there based on the articles and things that we've been reading in preparing for this podcast. As well as those links we've just given you, don't forget that you can listen to a number of podcasts that we refer to, like Ian Thompson talking about satellite tags and podcasts on stink pits and cage crow traps. Ruth, thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Charlie. It's been a real would say pleasure but um some of it's been a bit difficult hasn't it yeah but it's um it's an interesting topic and i'm really looking forward to how we're going to develop these ideas over the next next 11 months absolutely me too so just uh thank you very much to you and as ruth said a couple of times there we really do value feedback so we're looking forward to hearing from you thanks very much thanks guys bye the War on Wildlife podcast is presented by Ruth Pesey and Charlie Moores and is part of the War on Wildlife project from Lush. We'd like to thank Elise McKenna, Chris Packham and Bruce Parry for the mini interviews we used in this episode. For more information, links and suggestions to help tackle the War on Wildlife, please go to waronwildlife.co.uk and follow us on social media at War on Wildlife.